And so I can't, I'll never forget it. He, he, uh, we almost didn't get the deal done and he's sitting in my office, which is now, I guess, technically his office because he owned it, owned the building and everything then. And, and, uh, he said to me, congratulations, we got the deal done. I didn't think we were going to get it done, but congratulations. You're now a millionaire. And, uh, and let me give you a little piece of advice. What I didn't want to tell him, I was already a millionaire at that point, but you know, whatever, this guy's worth hundred million dollars plus I'm going to listen to what he says. He said, he said to me, it's a lot easier to make a million dollars than it is to hold on to a million dollars. And that just scared me. Like it really resonated with me. And, and, and I was sitting there like, this was after the, the wire transfers had gone through and everything. And sure enough, he was right. He, he, you know, he said, he said, a lot of people are going to be pitching you investment ideas and investment schemes. And I drive a 2006 Chevy Tahoe. So, so I drive a, I mean, that's an 18 year old car. So I still drive old stuff. Uh, you know, my, my home's paid for. I have no debt. And now, now here's the thing. I'm sure if I did some smarter stuff and leveraged some things, I, my net worth would be two or three X what it is today, especially over the last 10 years. But man, I've never lost a night's sleep. And so there's something to be said for that, especially, you know, with the roller coaster that we're kind of going through now. And, and who knows what the next couple of years is going to bring us. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 316. Stace, we're changing it up this week. (laughs) Kristen wrote in, and she doesn't want to know what's going on in your world anymore. So, how are you doing? <laughs> doing great over here. Should we tell them the big news or move on with the podcast? Big news will be dropping on Thursday. All right. Stay tuned. But we got a couple great, great uh, reviews slash inquiries this week and questions from, get, or questions from listeners. So, let's get to that first. This one comes from listener Seattle who's actually living in Canada interestingly enough and I just got back from there says love the show I'd like to suggest having more people who have a net worth in the four plus million rate category seems like a big chunk is a million or under which actually we don't have that many that are under a million anymore but we are going to start picking some of those back up on Thursdays while impressive not that uncommon anymore however I will note that the Canadian dollar and the U.S. dollar are drastically different. I will note that the Canadian dollar and the U.S. dollar are not as close to one-to-one as they once were, just for our listeners in Canada. I was with a Canadian last week, and we made a few jokes about it, because it, for the longest time it was one-to-one, but uh, recently it hasn't been. So, hey man, I'm with you. Listener Seattle, I would love to have more guests that have higher net worths, but uh, once again, this is all voluntary, so... Take uh, take those that ride in, and uh, would love to have more of them. So, and we also get some requests from time to time in the you know fifty five plus age range. Those that have a little bit more experience in life and can tell all of us you know been there, done that, got the t shirt kind of thing. So, always looking for great guests. If you'd like to be on the show, send us an email: millionairesandbuild at gmail this message comes from Eric. He says, hello, for your guests, are they basing their home assets value off of their latest appraisals or online app evaluations like Zillow? 
We all know how nuts the last few years have made these numbers, so I was just curious. I know mine would make a huge difference for my net worth. Thanks for your time and putting out easily my favorite finance show. Cheers. Jace, what do you say? Yeah, great question. And to be frank, I don't know that we have actually ever pulled our millionaires on on this. What I can tell you from context and from several of those that I can kind of recall, I do think a majority of them use either the basis that they bought the home, if it's been within the last few years, if it's something that they bought, you know, 10 plus, 5 plus, you know, 15 plus years ago, I do think they probably use either Zillow or some online tool if they do have a, a you know, updated market appraisal, which by the way, your realtor should be willing to do for you uh, in any case. And typically, you're going to pull a couple of comps from your area and, and give you uh, a market analysis or current market analysis on your home. Uh, if it's something that you want to do, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't pu- bug them frequently about that. But, you know, given the environment that, that we've seen the last couple of years here, you know, it may not be a bad idea to, if you are trying to mark to mark on your net worth, to probably get that, you know, annually, if not uh, every couple of years while the, the market's kind of going crazy. But you can also just look at, you know, your recent comps in your area and look at sales per square foot uh, or the uh, dollars per square foot sold. Uh, to try to do what you can uh, to get pretty close. So uh, outside of that, yeah, I don't know that our millionaires have have really dialed in, you know, utilizing a specific formula or anything specific on that. It's pretty hard. I mean, just in general, all assets, you know, even if it's a business or if it's, you know, you can you can kind of get there, but uh, sometimes it, you know, can fluctuate. And same thing on real estate and really pretty much anything except for you're selling in the public markets. So yeah. In our own life, I know you track our net worth. When I say you, I mean we. <laughs> okay, it's you. I look at it sometimes. But how do you track ours? Yeah, I just I, I, I take that approach where I might look at it and make adjustments annually or every other year based on kind of market, uh, the market environment. And uh, in most cases, I think I've held it pretty steady unless it had gone up by more than like 15%. And by steady, meaning that, you know, I put in a 5%, 3% increase year over year type thing, except for the, the most recent kind of run up two years ago. I think I was at 15% and I ended up getting a current market analysis on a couple of our properties. But thanks, Eric, for sending that in. Once again, if you'd like to send a, a question in, we do have a, a speak pipe where you can actually voice the question in. We'll play it on the air. Uh, For those that have a question, we'll uh, start to incorporate it into asking some of our millionaires when we do interviews as well. Stacey, I got to tell you, our guests, especially the guest lineup that we have coming up, is amazing. And all 300 plus of them that have been on the show already are absolutely fabulous. And I'm I'm so grateful that we have people willing to do this and continue to do this. I think, you know, we're coming up on year seven of the podcast, which is pretty wild. But I got to tell you, and I apologize there's so many out there that send requests in. You don't like this. You don't like that. You want more of this. You want more of that. And I really wish I could accommodate every single request that we get in terms of trying to you know, change up the show or do this, that, and the other thing. And maybe one day we will hit on a few of those things that, that come in. Just be, Just know that your requests are heard while one request I get or in some cases, we get one request. In other case, it's like the exact opposite. Between millions of people not listening to this, there's always going to be a few things that you may or may not like or may not may or may not think are perfect. But at any rate, appreciate you listening. 
And just know that we do read all the comments, questions, et cetera, that comes in uh, to the show. And as time goes on, maybe we'll incorporate some of those things that come in. And I will say any, anything that, that makes sense to, to adjust, we, we certainly do right away. And we do hear your, your comments. So thanks for your feedback. We always try to do better. I got to say, there is something to be, something to be said about being consistently consistent. There's, there's a, there's a, a gentleman who is in this space who's been consistently consistent now for three decades and he turned himself into a billionaire over it, which is pretty crazy to think. But nonetheless, that is something that we're, we're definitely going for. I'm a big fan of, of being consistently consistent. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing, right? Yep. So on today's episode, we have Brian. He's actually a returning guest given that, uh, the listenership has, uh, increased drastically. Most of you probably haven't heard of his episode, but his original episode was actually in July of 2021. It was 193. And yeah, we get into a totally different conversation on this one. And so I thought it'd be a great update with him. Going back to a couple of the comments earlier, Brian's net worth is five plus. He does have significant equity in his business that could be valued, uh, you know, upwards of eight to nine figures. However, He's just not sure where it is, and so he doesn't include it in his net worth. And so, you know, there's not a there's not a Zillow out there for for business valuations. Really, it's a, it's a much more complex process. So, uh, to the one that wanted somebody worth more than four million, well, today you got Brian, and to the to to Eric who asked the question uh, specifically related to how to value real estate. Here's a guy that really isn't quite sure how to value business. We know it's more than a million bucks, uh, but yeah, he's got everything paid for. And uh, we talk about all sorts of interesting stuff. In fact, when he was 29, he was living in a 7,000 square foot house and was driving a Ferrari, everything paid for. So you can imagine the, uh, and we get into a little bit of the detail with him describing what it was like uh, as an early young millionaire. But yeah, he, uh, he cuts grass and uh, that's where he sold his first business in that, in that uh, realm. And now he's building a tech startup that is... Uh, in the same field, in the same industry. So going to be a great conversation with him. Super excited to have him back on the show today. He has quite a bit of single family rentals and we get into the detail of how he acquired those and what his mindset was as he was starting to get into the rental real estate game and how we, he decided whether to invest in real estate or back in his own business in terms of return and whatnot. So, and without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Brian. Brian, do you want to just give us a little about your background and uh, what you're up to now? Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me on, Jason. My name is Brian Clayton. I am CEO of GreenPal. GreenPal is the mobile app that works like Uber, but for lawn care services. So if you're a homeowner and you've got tall grass outside and you need to get somebody to mow it, rather than calling around on Craigslist or Facebook or or trying to flag somebody down, you just download GreenPal, pop your address in and quotes in two minutes and hire somebody and they come out and do it for you and you pay them right through the app. GreenPal is a 11 year overnight success. My co-founders and I have been at this for over a decade now and uh, started off just in Nashville, Tennessee and have now grown the uh, platform to every major city in the United States, around 300,000 people using the app to get grass cutting services and uh, now doing over $30 million a year in revenue. And we have uh, self-funded the business, haven't taken on any outside capital, and 
and I've just been plugging away of ground and pound for a decade. Good for you. And we had you back on the show a few years ago. I guess it's been almost, I guess, three years ish. And no joke, right after you came on, I, I used the app and sure enough, got somebody to cut my lawn out at, a, at, at my cabin out on the lake. So it was great. So I'm, I was a user. I sold that place since. But uh, yeah, it's a great little, great little tool. So give our listeners a, a kind of a little history before you got to GreenPal. What, what did it look like you know, post high school for you? Yeah. So, you know, in high school, post high school, I was mowing grass. I, 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 my dad got tired of one day in 1995, my dad got tired of watching me play Nintendo and, uh, playing super Mario Kart. And he said, he came into my room and he said, get off your ass. I got a gig for you. You're going to go mow the neighbor's yard. And he made me go cut the neighbor's grass. I was not living in a democratic household. And luckily he did that because, uh, I remember I got paid 20 bucks for like a less than an hour's work. And I was hooked uh, from that moment on. And I thought, this is awesome. This is where it's at. I'm the, and so I just, I, I took to it like a hobby or almost like a sport or something and started passing out flyers. And, and by the time I graduated high school, I had like two helpers and 200 customers and, and went to, went to, went to college and went to, went to college nights and weekends and, and, uh, mowed yards six, seven days a week through, through college. And then after I graduated business school, I had to make a decision. Was I going to be a lawn guy, uh, my whole, you know, for the rest of my life. I didn't really want to be a lawn guy, but, but I thought maybe, maybe I could make something out of this business. And maybe that business ownership is, is kind of my lane. And, uh, kind of, ha- I had a chip on my shoulder. I wanted to prove that I could build a, a big business in, in the industry. And so I made a business plan with what little I learned in business school and, and set out to build a, a large landscaping company. And, Luckily, I had a couple things that broke my way that were going for me. Nashville, Tennessee was was just booming back then, still booming now, but but it was just entering its boom. So there's all kinds of new construction, new neighborhoods, new shopping centers, new opportunity to build a service-based business like that. And so I just rolled up my sleeves and and started working the plan and yada yada yada, 15 years later, uh, you know, my team and I were able to build it into a a $10 million a year business, 150 employees, 90 crews going out every day. And uh, the business was acquired um, in 2013 by actually by a company out of Austin, uh, a national company that, that operates in, in, in 20 or 30 different cities. And they wanted a presence in Nashville. So they bought my business. And uh, after that, I took some time off, kind of retired, I guess you could say. I, I, I wasn't like like super wealthy, but I, you know, I had enough, uh, from the proceeds of that sale to not have to work anymore and, uh, figured out what I wanted to do with my life. And I thought, well, I'd like to try to start a tech startup. And so I had the idea for green pal and, and uh, started working on that project. This show is supported by delete me in today's digital age. Our personal information is more vulnerable than ever often scattered across countless websites and databases. Delete me has been my solution for taking control of my online presence and ensuring my personal information remains private. Have you ever heard of data brokers? They collect information and make it available to any stranger on the web, which can lead to identity theft. If you've ever been the victim of identity theft, you know it can be a nightmare. It can ruin your chance at the new job you want, lead to legal issues, or worse. Delete Me removes your information from hundreds of data brokers. The best part? The service doesn't stop at a one-time removal. Delete Me provides ongoing monitoring to ensure that your data doesn't reappear. If it does, they take immediate action to remove it again. So what are you waiting for? Don't let your online past define your future. Take control with Delete Me. 
Now get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MU20 and use promo code MU20. The only way to get 20% off is to go to join, that's J-O-I-N, deleteme.com slash MU20 and enter promo code MU20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MU20, promo code MU20. And thanks again to Delete Me for supporting today's episode. So now now that you've got this business and, and you've been at it for a long time, where does your net worth stand today? I'm a little over $5 million. And uh, part of, you know, well, that's, just, and that's outside of GreenPal. GreenPal, we get, we've had several acquisition offers in the multiple eight figures uh, but that we've turned down. Um, but not including my equity in GreenPal. GreenPal is self-funded and is owned by wholly by me and my two co-founders. And uh, so whatever that's worth, I don't, I don't count. So I just count, okay, what's my real estate worth? What's my investments worth? And, and that's steadily grown over the last few years because, uh, because it's all real estate. It's, it's, it's all single-family homes. And when I sold that first business, I'll never forget it. The guy that bought the company was this arrogant dude. And I didn't really like him, but he was worth like nine figures. And, and he was super successful in the, in the, uh, industry that I just spent, you know, my whole life building a business in like he, and he took a company public in that, in that space, which is really hard. And so I can't, I'll never forget it. He, he, uh, we almost didn't get the deal done and he's sitting in my office, which is now, I guess, technically his office because he owned it, owned the building and everything then. And, and, uh, he said to me, congratulations, we got the deal done. I didn't think we were going to get it done, but congratulations. You're now a millionaire. And, uh, and let me give you a little piece of advice. Which I didn't want to tell him I was already a millionaire at that point, but you know, whatever. This guy's worth hundred million dollars plus. I'm gonna to listen to what he says. He said he said to me, It's a lot easier to make a million dollars than it is to hold on to a million dollars. And that just scared me. Like it really resonated with me. And 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 I was sitting there like this was after the wire transfers had gone through and everything. And sure enough, he was right. He, he you know, he said. He said, a lot of people are going to be pitching you investment ideas and investment schemes and, and uh, different th- ways to, you know, s- to invest this money. And I'm just telling you, it's a lot harder to hold on to it than it, is to, than it was for you to make it. And sure enough, right after that conversation, my banker calls me. Well, not really my banker. Somebody at the bank that I, that I bank with that I never talked, spoken with <laughs> calls me and says, hey, I just saw this wire come through your account. Do you want to you want to sit down with our wealth management team? <laughs> and I was just like, I was like, I was like, I don't know who this is. I don't know who this person is. Uh, but and so sure enough, so so the combination of, of of this of this guy telling me that, and then like literally like an hour later, somebody calling me, already pitching me on how to how to invest the money. I was like, this dude, this dude's probably right. I I don't need to. I don't want to screw this up. And so the 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 the, the safest most sure thing I could think of was just going up, buying, buying up single family homes. And so I just went on a buying spree, buying every decently priced, uh, $75,000 to $200,000 single family home I could buy. And I bought a lot of HUD foreclosures and some really good deals on some stuff. And so as it turns out, you know, spring of 2013 was still a really good time to buy real estate. And, uh, and so I just bought, I put it all in in home and in, in, in single family homes, and so then I was kind of poor again because I didn't have any cash. Uh, but it was good because now I couldn't screw that up, and and I and I had a good residual uh, 
uh, cash flow coming in every month to where I could live a, a, a really comfortable lifestyle and not worry about screwing it up. And, uh, and I'm glad I got that advice because, because I did peel off like a hundred grand just to play with, uh, with some investing, some, some, you know, see if I could, you know, pick some stocks and, 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 and 10 years now that, that that's worth about five grand. So it was actually, it was actually good advice. I'm glad he, I'm glad he gave it to me. I'm glad I followed it. Cause now, you know, I, I, I bought, I bought several homes for sixty and seventy-five thousand dollars that are that are worth over three hundred thousand dollars today. So not only did it like protect the principal and cash flow the whole time, it also appreciated nicely. So that's what I did with it, and it worked out. Got lucky. So going back to to the strategy of acquiring these single-family homes, was it? Did you have any before you sold the company at all? Yeah. So going back, rewinding 10, 12 years before then. Uh, I was probably 19, 20 years old and I was making in, in 1999, 2000, I was making like 200 grand a year mowing yards and not gross. Like, like my, my, I was meeting with my tax accountant wondering how we were going to pay this huge tax bill because I was making so much cash mowing yards. And she told me, she told me, do you like, do you like cutting grass? I said, no, I hate it. It sucks. My back hurts every day. Because back then I was physically mowing the yards. I smell like grass. My girlfriend hates me because I smell like gasoline every day, and I get home after dark, and you know, <laughs> I don't have any life outside of this business. It sucks. I don't. I don't want to do this <laughs> uh, for the rest of my life. She said, "Well, you need to be thinking about what you know, age thirty-five and forty looks like, and you need to start. You need to start, you know, taking this money and and, and investing it and." And let me just tell you about another client I have that owns 40 uh, rental properties. I was like, he owns 40 rental properties? I couldn't believe it. And she said, yeah. And she started telling me about this guy. Just told me a story about this guy. I thought, I want to be that guy. And so I decided, well, I'm just going to do that. And I'm going to take as much money as I can, cash that I was making mowing yards, and, and try to buy up fixer, fixer upper homes. And I, would, uh, I, I set a goal to buy one a year. And I was, I was pretty much able to buy one a year with the exception of the 2008 uh, meltdown, uh, my business almost almost got killed by that. So it was everything I do to hold on. But pretty much every year, I bought one 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 ha- one fixer upper, and my strategy was because um, I was in a seasonal business, and and so I would at the end of the year I would go hunting for one of these in October, and I just just a real just a real dump of a property, and 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 then put my guys on fixing it up over the winter to keep them busy. And, and then have a tenant in it by, you know, January or February, and then season would start again. And, and then I would have another property, you know, in, in, on my monopoly board. So when my business was sold, I already had, you know, 10, nine or 10 of these. And so I knew that business, I knew that it wasn't terribly complicated. And I kind of knew, you know, I, I tried back then I was buying stuff uh, with the 1% rule all day long. You can't do that anymore. But back then I was, you know, where, 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 uh, one uh, percent of the of the of the home's value is is a monthly rent. So if it was a you know a hundred thousand dollar home, it should be able to get a thousand dollars a month. That that little rule of thumb is long since gone out the window in Middle Tennessee. But back then, that was just a simple rule of thumb I used to acquire properties. And when I when I plowed all my cash from the sale into properties, that was the the, the same kind of heuristic that I used, and it worked. And I knew that I. You know, although 2008, nine properties did go down in value, a lot of those were your, your more like McMansions, you know, my, my little humble properties that, you know, I bought for 
70 or 80 or 90 K didn't go down that much. So I knew it was durable in that sense. And, and, and also I knew I wanted to do it debt free because I didn't, I didn't take on any debt building that portfolio up. I, I, I paid cash for all of them. Another interesting side note while I'm just telling anecdotes from 2000, from 1999 to 2003, I was mowing yards. And so every day I would listen to talk radio and sandwiched between two talk radio hosts I like. Uh, there was G. Gordon Liddy in the morning, and there was another uh, conservative talk radio host in the, in the evening. And sandwiched between those two was, was Dave Ramsey. And I hated Dave Ramsey. Uh, but like, I had to listen to four hours of this guy every day because back then you didn't have Spotify. You didn't have MP3 players. You had FM, AM, FM radio. And so I, uh, I would just listen to three or four hours of Dave Ramsey and listening to like his philosophies on on wealth building and dealing with debt and things like that scared me again to not to not uh, take on a bunch of debt. So I built my business debt free and also my my real estate portfolio debt free. And so building the business debt free was one thing that enabled me to get it sold because because I didn't have any debt when I sold it. So that's that's actually a really good segue into the question I'd like to to dig into. So in in that acquisition phase, basically it sounded like from your story that you had built up a business that was big enough to get noticed by someone, a bigger fish, right? So how did you find the, the, the lawnmower king of, you know, where, you know, a different region that's worth nine figures and he's looking to acquire smaller lawnmower uh, owner, lawn, lawn maintenance owners? Like, like how did that come about? Yeah, ideally, you know, you are so good that people come knocking on your door and, and it's just a smooth acquisition, but that's not how it was for me. It was very much a sale. It was very much a push. Um, it was very much a outbound process. And so I had reached a point of like where I had plateaued running the business from a personal development level. Like one thing, I think if you're doing business right at any, at any scale, you as the founder should evolve into a whole new person every two or three years. Uh, where you're learning new things, learning new systems, learning new processes, you're conquering new new challenges, you're achieving goals, and like you're growing and evolving. And that's like one of the fun. You may not realize it, and I, and I did it at the time, but that's one of the fun things about it that kind of keeps you plowing through the lows and 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 keeps you going. And I had reached a plateau as far as like that experience of it, probably year thirteen, where where I realized, man, you know, it's not like I conquered the world or anything, but my business was one of the bigger ones in Tennessee. Uh, I, I kind of reached a point in market saturation and, 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 and now to go to the next level, I was going to have to like open up new branches in different parts of the Southeast. I didn't really have the appetite to do that. So I, I guess you could say I was kind of like spent running that business for 15 years or 13 at that time. And so I made the decision, okay, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to get this business acquired because I heard other people had been able to do it. And I, you know, I talked to people at conferences and, and, uh, I met a guy at a conference once that specialized in what they call, it's called green industry. My industry, is, the, the landscape industry is called the green industry. And it was just green industry mergers and M&A. And that's all this guy did. And, uh, he literally did not sell businesses outside of the industry. And every year he would do like one or two deals and he would take I think it was five percent of the of the proceeds. That may be high. It might have been less. Uh, may have been three percent. Anyway, he took a look at everything and like gave me the hard truth that that I was going to have to like rebuild the business from the studs out. I was going to take the business down to the studs and rebuild it to get it acquired. There was just a lot of systems that I didn't have. The accounting was not in gap, which it needed to be, and that took a lot of time. A lot of the key people you need 
and and also how you run the business is very different. Uh, if, uh, you know, you might run a business uh, as a family business, and and uh, and versus how you how you run a business you eventually want to sell are vastly different. And an example of that might be just just for example, like like let's say at the shop we had a philosophy at the shop that it should look like like a Ferrari dealership. It should be clean. The floor should be shiny. The fence should be painted. Like it should like all the tools should be lined up. Like it should just be gorgeous. And we spent quite a bit of money, you know, like we spent like $5,000 repainting the fence. And as it turns out that $5,000 we spent painting the repainting, redoing the fence cost us like uh, t- five times six, you know, $30,000 at sale <laughs> because, because that was an expense we incurred that we didn't necessarily have to. <laughs> and, and so, and so, you know, if you're planning on keeping the business for, for 10 or 20 years, yeah, you do things like that. If you're planning on selling it in two years, you don't do things like that. And so there was all kinds of discretionary expenses that, that we did because it matched our philosophy and culture that weren't necessarily directly equated to EBITDA. And, and so just all sorts of weird things like that that took a long, my point is it took a long time to sort through and, and, and change and, and fix. So it was two years from the time I, des- uh, I decided I wanted to sell the company to the day we got like a term sheet. And then from the day we got a term sheet, it was another nine months of hell uh, through due diligence and back and forth and meeting with, with different people and then and, and getting a you know, deal signed and then going through a big ordeal of retrading and go, you know, arguing over price and stuff. So easily the hardest thing I've ever done. This is, uh, so no, it was, this is Jace's uh, realm for torturing small business owners into acquisition. So I'm sure he's getting ready to ask some great questions. Um, but before he does, that was, you kind of led, I was like, are there lawn care conferences? And it sounds like, like you went to some industry conferences. So you were put yourself in the mix. You're obviously a great talker and you can sell and things like that. And so basically you basically built an industry, uh, Rolodex, so to speak right and found your way to someone who specializes in this type of M&A is very similar to our prior guest we just had who you know sought out M- you know someone who does M&A and literally just googled it and found some the right people and then they told her here's what you need to do to get the exit you want right and so that's that's pretty pretty amazing and my my next question though is okay so you're on the green pal and your business is scaling now and you're and you're getting looked at and you're getting offers how how is it that you're capable of saying no at this point is it because you already have wealth or is it because the the vision you have is bigger than the than the money at the moment like how do you how do you take say no to big offers that are obviously life changing yeah good good question and part of you know managing your own personal psychology through through all the journey of building a company like this is I think is half the battle. And so before, you know, we were doing good, we uh, we, we were not doing good and it sucked. And I had to make a decision in the early days of starting this company that no matter what, from that day forward, I was going to be working on my best idea. And so we ended the first year starting GreenPal with like 20 customers and we were working 7 days a week <laughs> and and just just not getting anywhere. And I kind of wanted to like give up, but then I thought, well, what else are you going to do? Because you already tried to retire and, you know, while, you know, you've got, you've got, uh, you got enough, enough money where you don't need really need anymore. 
So you kind of need a project, need a mission. And so I made a decision that, you know, from now on, no matter what, by default, I'm just going to work on my best idea. And, and that was how I got through the first five years because it was really excruciating, just grinding out the, the business and, 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 you know, celebrating very small wins, you know, like our, our first goal was to get a hundred customers and that took two years. And then, you know, then we wanted to get a thousand, then we wanted to get 10,000 and every one of these took like a year, two years each. And so, so just managing my psychology and my co-founders the same way, managing our, our psychology through that, I guess like hardened me to now, like now that it's doing well and, and, you know, we get, we get VCs hitting us up even through this downturn every day. And then, and then M&A offers regularly that it's like, well, you know, I mean, what am I going to do if I do sell this company? I got, I need some, I need a, I need a mission. And it still is like day one. This, this is a $99 billion industry. You wouldn't think it, but, but lawn care in the United States is, is damn near a hundred billion dollars. And we're just, a, we're just like a drop in the bucket. You know, we're doing like around $30 million a year in sales. So, so we got a long way to go. And, and I think what I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I do it till I'm not having fun anymore because it's just now like, it's just now fun. It's just, it's just the last four years have just gotten to be where it's fun, where I'm able to build a team. We're 47 people now. And I've got people that are smarter than me. Uh, everybody that, that works for the company is smarter than me in some way in, in, in what they do. That's fun. And, and seeing it grow is fun. And so, you know, get to a million users and a hundred million in sales is, is the next goal. And, uh, you know, somebody offered me a billion dollars for it. Yeah, I'd take it. But, but uh, you know, the offers we've gotten, which which are sub sub a hundred million dollars, I don't know. It just seems like there's just a lot, a lot more, a lot more uh, territory to conquer, and there's a lot more fun to be had. Now, the minute I don't feel like that, or the minute I start sucking at this job, you know, then then that'll change it. You know, and we may find out that you know, because there's three phases to every one of these companies. There's a startup, grow up, and then the scale up. And so, and so the startup is like, we've got an idea, we've got a prototype, we've got a hundred people using it. We don't really know if we have a business and then there's a grow up. It's like, okay, we have a little something and we're making money and, and now we've got an actual business. Maybe we're doing a million a year in revenue. And then there's a scale up. It's like managers on managers, you know, hundred plus employees. I, I, I'm pretty good at the first two phases. We're going to find out if I'm any good at the last phase and we might find out that I suck at it. And so that may, that may change how, how, how I see this. But for now, I'm having fun doing it. It's interesting you bring up the word fun because I've had several conversations with, with a lot of people recently and it, it seems like that's a, a common theme that, hey, if I'm having fun, I don't necessarily need to look for either an exit or change of pace or whatever else. But the second I stop having fun, then it's time to 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 move on or or look for something different or figure out how to get back to having fun. Yeah, it it's a good position to earn your way to, to. And and so I don't want people to hear that and say, "Well, I'm not having fun running this home cleaning service or this dry cleaning business or this bakery or this construction company. It sucks. I hate it." And so I think you can get to a position of where you're only going to do something if it's fun after you ha- have a double or you know a single or a double you know, or a win under your belt. So you've sold a company or you've, or you've built a little bit of a real estate portfolio and you don't have to work anymore. And, and so now you, you, you want to do what's fun with the rest of your life. Cause man, I'll tell you the 15 years I spent running my, my first company sucked. It was not fun. It was organized chaos. It was putting out a hundred fires every day. It, you know, it was seven days a week. It was stressful. 
there was nothing fun about that. And so, and so I don't want people to misconstrue like what I'm saying as advice to only do things that are fun in business. Cause you won't get, you won't get very far. Uh, if, you know, when you're trying to go from zero to one for sure. Shopify is the e-commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers into buyers. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control of your business and take it to the next level. Sign up for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com unveiled. That's all lower coast. Go to shopify.com unveiled to take your business to the next level today. Shopify dot com slash unveiled and thanks to shopify supporting for supporting today's episode so at, at this point how do you think about putting money and reinvesting back into the business for growth versus you know buying some more rental properties for example or putting some in in you know personal residence or whatever you might want to do outside of the business yeah it's a great it's a great question um because i've often i've often waffled on this uh, you know, over the years, because I've spent a decade building this business. And the best I can tell, the best decision over the past decade for ROI has been to put every dime I could back into building the tech business. Because the tech tech multiples are just still far beyond any other multiples you're, you're going to find. So, and so while, you know, I don't have like a liquidity event to, to point to, to say, yeah, the, the ROI is there. I, I have a, I have faith in a belief and just kind of marking to other comps of, of sales of, of companies like ours and also M&A chatter. I can pretty well now tie back and say, yeah, every single dime I can afford to reinvest in the technology business is, is better off there than anywhere. And that's buying more real estate or, or investing in equities or, or, or anything else the best ROI is investing in my own technology business. So that's what I've done over the last 10 years. I, 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 I've done a little dab of, of, of real estate investing, but, but very little since I, since I uh, start, have started this company. Uh, so that's, that's been my, that's been my strategy was, okay, the, the first phase, the first uh, 15 years was building up the, the, the first portfolio sell the blue collar business, reinvest that into real estate, lock all that down, kind of bank it. Now let's, let's, let's go after the technology business. Let's go after tech multiples and, uh, and reinvest everything, whether it's, it's, it's cash, uh, foregoing salary. Like I, I didn't get paid a salary for the first five years and reinvested all of that back in and, and putting that all back into the technology business. And that's paid off. Now I don't, I mean, I can't like take that cash to the bank yet, but but it will ultimately one day. And um, there's a there's a strange thing going on in technology right now where they say uh, something like eighty percent of, of of all venture back companies out there right now can't can't clear what say can't clear their preference stack, which means the amount of money they've brought in and uh, is they're less they're worth less than the capital they've brought in. And so I didn't want to get into that situation. So luckily we didn't go down the path of, of raising venture capital. 
And so our, our cap table for the business has just got three, three line items on it, myself and my two co-founders. So that's a good place to kind of have grinded our way towards. And so that's the way I look at it. That's the way I'm going to keep looking at it is just to keep, keep, uh, I, I pay myself a salary now, but, it, but it's probably half what, what the industry comps are for, for a CEO of the size of this company or, or who, or what I'd have to pay somebody to do my job. Because I want to, I want to invest, you know, I've got a data scientist that works for me and makes a thousand dollars an hour. Now we can't afford her for, for really many hours, but, but I'd like to, I'd like to have somebody like that full time, you know? And so, and so, uh, so reinvesting in those types of high leverage things is, is what I try to keep our cash for. How long did it take for you to get profitable? Six years. Wow. I mean, we were, you know, we were, we were, I mean, you know, it's not like we, we, we just didn't, we didn't really make any real money for three years. And then it took another three years on the top of that to have any kind of meaningful business. And then, and then now, you know, we're, now we're making money, but it took six years and, and, and we, we were operating at a loss. You know, I loaned the company a couple hundred thousand dollars to get started. And it took a while to pay that back. My co-founders put money in as well. We made a lot of mistakes in the early days too, because none of us knew you know, none of us knew how to code. None of us had ever built a software product before. So we had to like learn. We had to do three things at once, work on the business, you know, thinking through the strategy, thinking through the product, thinking through how we're going to acquire customers. Then we had to work in the business, making sure it ran properly, making sure when people signed up that they actually got service like they were supposed to. And then the third thing is we had to work on ourselves, reading every book we could get our hands on, taking every online course we could to learn how to code, you know, taking every every course we could to learn search engine optimization, things like that. So it was like three things at once for the, you know, seven days a week for, for three years and no salary. And yeah, it was, probably, it was probably five or six years. As a tech entrepreneur, how many tech and you, you not knowing how to code? Sounds like your partners weren't CTOs either. Mm-mm. Did you build no. all of your code overseas and just figure it out yourself, or did you hire a tech person to run the show? Like, how did you get the, through those first? Yeah, I assume iterations. Yeah. So the first thing we did, we believed this would work. We we thought, well, I kind of know what I want it to be because I've spent 15 years in the industry, and you know. I kind of know how we want it to look and what features we want this thing to have. We'll just pay a dev shop in Nashville to build the product and then we'll market it and we'll be, we'll just be off and going. And, and so we did that. We pulled together some of, uh, we pulled together our money and spent like 150 grand with a development shop in Nashville. It took them nine months and, uh, and to, to build the product and, we got it released and 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 realized really quick that that wasn't going to work. It just it was it, it it was buggy. It didn't have the features it needed. People, you know, we were passing out flyers to get people to use it, and 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 they hated it. Um, and we learned real quick that that was a foolish mistake. That trying to build a tech company with no engineering skills is like is like saying I have an idea for a song. I just need to go hire a musician to to compose it and sing it. Or or it's like it's like it's like trying to start a five star restaurant and you've never cooked a meal before and you don't have a chef. Yeah. My prior company is, was literally servicing all people who are non tech founders who had already tried building the tech themselves. That was one of my companies. So literally you would, <laughs> yeah. you would have been like honey to the to the or be to the honey for me, you know, because you had experienced the pain of trying to do it yourself. 
and then now you've got to reconfigure. But kudos to you for sticking with it because a lot of people just like, okay, well, I just blew up all my money and I'm not cut out for this and I and leave. So how did you retool from that learned expensive lesson? Yeah, we had to re retrench and, and, and it was a real gut check. And that was kind of, you know, like I mentioned earlier that I, I had to like take a deep breath, look, look at myself in the mirror, figure out where I, where I wanted to be in life, what I wanted to do. And just decide that, that no matter what I was just from that moment, I was going to work on my best idea. And, and we were just going to do everything it took to get there. And, you know, ideally you get, you get a, what Paul Graham calls a hacker and a hustler. You get somebody who's just, you know, a hustler who's just sales oriented is good with customers and good at, good at customer discovery. And then you get a hacker who maybe just wants to sit behind a laptop all the time and built several websites before or something. And, and the two of these people come together and one plus one is three. Well, we had three hustlers. And so we just had three people who all wanted something more out of life. And we all had a chip on our shoulder in some way. And, and we just wanted to prove that we could build something big. And, and that was it. And, and what I learned going through that was, okay, well, I'm not an engineer, but that doesn't mean that I can't just become a crappy front end engineer just through taking online classes. And the same for my, for my co-founder, he learned server side backend stuff. And, and, and we just decided that even though we didn't have these titles of designer or SEO or engineer, that we were just going to like learn how to do this stuff to be just dangerous enough to where we could get to the next level and then like start to make a little bit of money and then start to reallocate that capital towards building out a team around us. And as it turns out, that was the, that was the right way to do it. And, and, and looking back in 22 years of, of business, whether it was my blue collar business or now my, my tech company, virtually every single time I've tried to outsource something that I had never done before or delegate something that I didn't have acumen in, it's always blown up in my face pretty much every single time. And, and when, you try to, when you try to delegate something, you want to you delegate from a stewardship standpoint, not one of abjuration. So you don't want to say, okay, like, I don't know how to do this. You go handle it. That's always going to blow up in your face. You want it to, you want it to be like, okay, here's the scope of work for what we need done. You know, here's how we do it here. Here's why we do it this way. Here's the level of quality we expect. Here's how long we think it should take. Here's, here's the, the different tactics and, and, and languages and things we want you to use and do. And here's, the, here's our system that you're going to plug into. And now we, this is when we expect to have it back. You go handle it. That's how you delegate. And so I kind of had to do it wrong first. And then learn how to do it right. And but the problem is, is I, I I overcorrected on the other end of the pendulum. It swung too far to the other side, because then like here, uh, you know, we've pissed away all of our money on on dele- on outsourcing and delegating when we didn't know what we were doing, and now we don't have any cash, and so we like we held on to it too long after that, and then in turn delegate the right way. We could have we could have framed up a good team around us two years in and we didn't like until like three or four years in. So the PTSD from that took a while to, to, to work through that cognitive overhead. It makes for a good story. <laughs> well, it still feels like day one, but, but yeah, that was a chapter of it that, that, that was rough. Yeah. So Brian, at this point, where do you go from here with, with your life, your investments, the business? And well, one thing I want to go back to that I think we covered in, in for our listeners, that, that may be tuning in later. The original episode was 193. 
back in 2020. So, or 2021, sorry, July of 2021. So did you have a, do you have a paid for house or do you have debt on the house on your primary residence? I, I, I have, yeah, I have zero debt anywhere. So this, this Dave Ramsey Kool-Aid, like I'm still hooked up to it. And <laughs> he's in your, you know, like, right? so, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, he's worth a, you know, he's a, I think he's pretty much officially a billionaire. He is. He is. Isn't that crazy? He is. When I was I listening I'm, to I'm, him 20 years ago, he was like in the eight figures range. He hadn't even hit nine at that point. And now this dude's a billionaire. That's insane no, I, to me. My, my grandfather it is pretty used crazy. to say debt free business. Easiest way to, yeah. The easiest way to become a billionaire is to be a preacher or a financial advisor. <laughs> 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 so, there's some truth to that. He's a little bit of both. <laughs> so you're still on the Dave Ramsey kick, debt free on everything, and always have been essentially after you exited the first business, correct? Yeah, that's right. I drive a, uh, I drive a 2006 Chevy Tahoe. So, so I drive a. I mean, that's an 18 year old car. So I still drive old stuff. Uh, you know, my, my home's paid for. I have no debt. And now, now here's the thing. I'm sure if I did some smarter stuff and leverage some things. I, my net worth would be two or three X what it is today, especially over the last 10 years. But man, I've never lost a night's sleep. And so there's something to be said for that, especially, you know, with the roller coaster that we're kind of going through now and, and who knows what the next couple of years is going to bring us. I've missed out on a lot of gains, but I also, I've also had a lot of peace of mind. Yeah, for sure. There's value in that, right? That, yeah, there uh, is. It's hard to place the value on that, but uh, man, that's crazy. So lifestyle inflation, even as your net worth has grown and, and even the success of, of your new venture, I mean, you haven't really partaken in any of that. Is that correct? Well, not necessarily. So I've kind of been there, done that, uh, with, with my first company. So, so just to kind of rewind, like I, I when I was mowing yards, I was mowing yards in, in outside of Nashville, Tennessee, in like the best neighborhoods. Uh, was my, where my clientele lived, the doctors in town, the lawyers in town, the business owners in town. And I thought, man, if I could just, cause I was really conflicted. I didn't want to like spend my life in the landscaping business. Cause I thought it was kind of like, I thought I, I was, I was, th- I was perceiving, perceiving myself that I would be a loser if I did that. And I thought, well, if I could just live in this neighborhood by 30, then, then yeah, then it'll, then it'll be worth it. And, and so that was a goal that, you know, it was like the best neighborhood in town, you know, $2 million houses and up and then, and outside of Mur- in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, outside of Nashville, those are nice houses. $2 million doesn't buy you anything out West or in the Northeast, but in Tennessee it does. And so, and so that was my goal was like, if I could just live in this same neighborhood as my customers, then, then I will have made it, you know, in my head. And, and if I could, if I could, if I could do that, then, then, then life will be good. So, so I set out, set out a, 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 a plan to do that. And I, and I did it by 29. So here I am 29 years old. I'm living in the best neighborhood in, in town. And I, and I went ahead and bought a Ferrari. So I had a Ferrari in the garage, uh, best neighborhood in town, pool, outdoor pool house. Neighbors hated me cause I threw parties all the time. And like, they're like trying to live like the, they're in their fifties and here I am 29 and they couldn't believe a landscaper was their neighbor. And so the whole thing was just weird. But, but I did that for like two years and, and learned a lot about myself that, that, man, it was a big pain in the butt. Like having a big house, like it was like 7,000 square feet. Was, it was just a pain. It was just me. 
and it was just a headache and like the car was a headache. And as it turns out, I don't, I don't like driving that kind of car because then everybody wants to talk to you everywhere you go. And I don't really feel like having a conversation with a stranger at the gas station every time I go to get gas. So, so I like, like literally in 18 months or 24 months, I sold all that and got rid of all of it. (laughs) (laughs) You were a self-made, you were living the life of a self-made Billy Madison. Exactly. I mean, it was bizarre and stupid with zeros on the end of it. And, and, uh, and so I guess uh, I learned those lessons. I learned about myself that I don't like all that stuff. I don't need all that stuff. So now I live very simply. I, you know, I, I live in a very small condo and uh, I love the travel. I love experiences. And so that's really what I spend my money on now is, is traveling, traveling the world, seeing as much of the world as I can and, um, and, and not doing anything I don't want to do. That's really important to me. I only answer the phone for a handful of family members and, and friends. And, you know, whereas back, back when I was running my first company and starting my second one, you know, I would have to take a hundred phone calls a day. And so I kind of have PTSD about having to take phone call after back to back to back. So I don't want to do that anymore. Those are the things I place value in. And so now it's like, you know, just being able to, 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 to build things that people get value from and make money while doing it is, is my idea of, of success and happiness now. And, and it's not tied to material things because I've kind of been there, done that, made those mistakes. And everybody tells you that. Everybody tells you like, oh, once you, you know, the, you, you, you're not going to be happy once you have those things. You have to still get those things. Like, the, like uh, you're not able to like, no, you're not able to learn that without experiencing it yourself. Great perspective to, to share with our listeners. So let's, let's wrap up with a, a couple of rapid fire questions and I'm not going to do all, all the normal ones just cause we've, we've done a bunch with you and you just shared a bunch of kind of insight to some of those. But one, one thing I do want to ask, uh, off the, off the bat here is what's a key lesson that you learned from childhood? Yeah. Well, let's see from childhood. I think I, I, I was able to develop the chip on my shoulder that got me through the first maybe metaphorical five levels of business because I look I, I you know I did, I wasn't like the cool kid in high school I wasn't I, I wasn't picked for the for the for the varsity uh soccer team and I didn't have a date to prom and you know all of these things that I went through as a kid were kind of foundational in putting this chip on my shoulder to get me to where I, I had this this desire to build a successful business. Now, once you, once you get through like the first two or three levels of the game, then you realize that it's the business is not about you. It's, it's about the people that work for you. And, it, and it's about the family that you have built around you in the business. And it's about your customers and stakeholders. It's no longer about you, but you kind of need that chip on your shoulder to get through, uh, to get through the, the early days. And, and so, and I, and I look for this with people that I hired to, to, to join our mission now, I look for people that have that kind of chip on their shoulders. So I, I, I don't know if I learned that or developed that when I was young in high school, but I, that was one thing I learned. The other thing I learned was, was that you, you have to, you have to develop something like you have to build once and sell twice. And I learned that at a young age that I wasn't going to make any money, just me mowing yards all day. And in fact, I had customers who were dentists, who were lawyers, and, and, and I was always baffled, like they could only sell their hours one time. And even as a young kid at 18, 19, 20, I understood that then. And that carried me through to where I am today. It was like build once, sell twice. 
And so even as a kid, I was like trying to figure out how to get multiple crews going of what I was doing to where, to where I could like multiply and duplicate this stuff. So those are things that I learned then that are still true today. Nice. What's the most fun that you've had with money? Mm, let's see. I'll tell you the most fun that I've had with money. And I've done a lot of stupid things with money. And I, and I, and I by no means have achieved huge amounts of wealth. I guess you could say like I'm middle, middle class fancy. And I heard Grant Cardone say the other day that if you're a single, being a single digit millionaire is the new middle class. <laughs> Grant Cardone said that the other day, and that that kind of hurt. But uh, the funnest thing I've ever done with money, I was in uh, Bogota, Colombia, and I heard through the grapevine that there was this guy who was a fellow uh, gang leader who would walk you through, protected through some of the neighborhoods in the hills there. And so I don't know if you've ever seen like been in South America or seen like pictures where it's like a hillside and it's just tons of like shanty shacks. And just different different little houses that look like they're all about to fall down. And and I've always like wondered like what's down in there? Like like how do these people live down in there? And and so I wanted to go see that and I wanted to go walk through that. And so I paid this guy like a hundred dollars and he escorted me through this this barrio. And and it's basically like a, like a really poor, dangerous neighborhood where people live and and uh and he's telling me that if we go around this corner we're both gonna be killed because he his cousin killed the leader of that neighborhood and, and that this neighborhood has boundaries to it and we can only go so far. And but they we're I'm safe with him because because he's kinda like the 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 overlord of, of this neighborhood. So felt kind of safe. And so I'm I'm walking through the these kind of little shacks and shanties and seeing, you know, like people living with live chickens and, and there is no, like, there is no like suitable structures. It's, it's all this kind of stuff cobbled together and tin roofs and whatnot. And, and I see this guy who's working on his little shack and, and I'm looking at it and, and I used to, I used to do a lot, quite a bit of construction. I'm looking at, he's actually doing a pretty good job building it. Uh, and I'm like, you know, he's got a pretty good foundation here and I can see where he's roughing in the piping and stuff. And, and I looked at I was like, I was like, so you're doing a, you're doing a pretty good job building this. I said, how long, how long, uh, until it's going to be done. And, and he goes, ah, you know, maybe two more years. I'm like two years at this rate, you know what you're doing. You can get this done in three months. He goes, well, it's the money. I don't have the money to finish it. So I work a little bit and, and, and just kind of build it as I go. I said, well, how much money is it going to take you to finish this thing? He said, ah, uh, you know, about, about, he, he told me something in pesos and I, and I put it in my phone. And it was $800. I was like, so $800 is going to finish, uh, this, your whole house. And, and he goes, yeah, yeah. And, and I thought, huh? I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a hundred dollars today. And if you can WhatsApp me progress pictures, I will send you a hundred dollars a week until you get this house finished. He's like, you do that. And I said, yeah. And, and so, uh, sure enough, gave him a hundred dollars that day. And two weeks goes by. I didn't think anything of it. I get like a flood of pictures in my inbox where now he's got like some studs and, you know, he's like, okay, now my next plan is I need to wire this up. And he's like, he's like giving me the, but I need another hundred dollars. So I sent him another hundred dollars. So long story short, you know, over the course of like three months, we built the house and like he, sure enough, he got it done. And, and that was a lot of fun for very, very, very little amount of money. Probably the funnest thing I've ever done with money. That's cool. That's cool. That's a cool story. What has been the craziest thing you've ever done to earn money? So not necessarily crazy, but something I don't ever want to have to do again. Uh, 
was when I was trying to break into the commercial market in my first business, uh, anybody that's tried to run a service-based business knows that going from a residential com- com- uh, uh, client base to a commercial client base is kind of hard because they're almost two different businesses. Commercial landscaping and residential landscaping are two different businesses. And you kind of have to learn how, the, how, they enter, how they speak and how the processes work and how they do RFPs for pricing and stuff. But I had a, I had a, a client I was mowing yards for uh, who owned like three McDonald's. He was a McDonald's franchiser. And every year I would beg him, like, you know, let me bid on the contract for the, for those three restaurants. And he's like, nah, we got somebody corporate puts puts us through. And and I thought, well, well, uh, what can I do to earn your business? You know, just think, oh, I'll be cheaper than this guy. You know, whatever. And uh, I, it hit me one day that I was I was at one of his stores and ordering. I was ordering like you know extra value meal. And I looked down and 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 in the drive through, the whole drive through area is covered with cigarette butts. And I'm like, this is disgusting. <laughs> like, like nobody, nobody cleans this up. And, and, and so I was working that day. So I got, I got my, my two helpers and I, and we took a five gallon bucket and we picked up all the cigarette butts. So I took before and after pictures, um, with my crappy digital camera and, uh, printed them off and gave it to him. I said, look, we will clean up the cigarette butts every time we come to mow the yard, uh, at, at your store for free every time. You know, if you'll do that, I'll give you the contract. So sure enough, we did. And like, I guess careful what you asked for, because then every time I went to go service his property, I had to get on my hands and knees and pick up cigarette butts and put them in a, in a five gallon bucket. And, and they, he loved it. And he gave me the other two stores and then, and then we did that for them. And, and then, uh, and then he took me to the regional kind of meeting and, and, and the next uh, year and they let me pitch something like a 20 other operators. And I picked up another 10 stores doing that. And then little by little at, at the time of selling that business, we, we mowed something like maintained something like 120 different McDonald's locations, still picking up the cigarette butts every week. Um, so that was something that I did then. And it was nasty. And I hope I never have to do that again. And that was one reason why I, I bought a bunch of real estate selling that business. Cause I never wanted to go pick up cigarette butts again. That's an awesome story. <laughs> That's <I> awesome. Love <laughs> it. Well, Brian, what would be your last piece of advice to somebody who's just getting started on their journey? Uh, well, well, what I would say is if you're just getting started, you know, the least sexy your business, probably the greater your chances of success. And so for me, it was the lawn mowing business. If you can, if you can think of simple businesses like that and then just work really hard in them for a period of time and, and turn low quality revenue into high quality revenue. And what I mean by that is like, take the, the money you're making out of that entry level business and put it into more durable sources of revenue like real estate. It's just a no brainer, simple way to, to build seven, seven and eight figure wealth that anybody can do if they're willing to work hard enough in this country and still, and maybe even more as, as I, as I see a lot of service-based businesses, it's just really hard to get a home cleaner. It's really hard to get a plumber, an electrician, these simple, like traditional types of blue collar service-based businesses are now in more high demand. And these businesses have higher margins than they've ever had. So if you can think of it that way, where it's like, okay, I'm going to put five or 10 years into a, a blue collar type of business, get on first base, and then I'm going to swing for the fences for my second or third thing. You know, cause a lot of people don't want to do that. They want to bypass all that and they want to like go for the glory, you know, 
right off the starting block. And that's just not the way it works. It's going to take five or 10 years to build a foundation. For sure. But get started awesome. But Brian. get started today. Awesome. That's Brian with a net worth of over $5 million. Thanks for having on the show today. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.